is an Odyssey original. This is KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. The Me Too movement was supposed to completely transform Hollywood. It was going to usher in a new age of inclusion and diversity. But there's concern now that Hollywood is going backwards. The studios focus on what they feel are bigger issues. But can't they do both? We go in-depth into Hollywood, Me Too, and diversity. It took a bit of time, but Adidas finally ended its partnership with Kanye West following his anti-Semitic comments. We'll get into that. And a Russian court has upheld Brittany Griner's prison sentence. So a deal between the U.S. and Russia is really the only thing that will bring her home now. A 5.1 earthquake has shaken the Bay Area. Going to head up there to find out just how bad the jolt was and how people reacted. Some Democratic strategists now getting worried that black voters won't turn out in big numbers for the midterm elections in two weeks. We'll go in-depth on what that might mean for the candidates. A new study finds getting a side effect after an mRNA COVID shot could give you even more antibody protection. And a new list shows you're right. If you think burgers are getting more expensive in L.A. I don't think they are. They are. I know they are. I know they are. Uh, We start, though, with Hollywood and Me Too. Amy Bear is a producer, former studio executive, and the board president of Women in Film. Amy, thanks for being with us. So it was an interesting uh, article I was reading today in uh, the New York Times, uh, front page, about that there seems to be uh, some, maybe even considerable, backsliding in Hollywood when it comes to whatever uh, advances might have come about as the result of the Me Too movement and other things as well. Uh, what's your take on it? Well, first of all, thank you both for having me. Um, you know, I think a lot of progress has been made, a lot of um, indelible progress. I don't think it's something that gets swept under the rug anymore uh, when it comes to accusations of hostile work environments and uh, harassment, both sexual and psychological. Um, but I do think that the progress um, has slowed and there is fatigue. There's fatigue in any movement. There's fatigue in any effort for change, it's hard to sustain initial momentum and enthusiasm whenever you're trying to affect cultural change. Um, And I think that's even more endemic in Hollywood, where it's been such an insular, uh, an insular community primarily run by white men for so long. Could it also be partially the result of our short attention spans? And also, you, you talk about the progress that was made. Some people may have looked at that and went, oh, everything's cool now. It's all good. We don't need to think about it anymore. We've got other things to think about. Is that part of the problem? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, I think that it, it is. I don't even know if it's a short attention span. I think it's something that that culturally across the country, people really care about. And And the thing about the Me Too movement is it isn't just specific to Hollywood, it is something that applies to almost every sector of industry and every sector of our economies. But certainly um, other things other things present themselves that feel more acute and more in the moment. And you do feel like, oh, well, that's somebody's taking care of that so we can move on. You know, if your company now has a DEI uh, uh, person to conduct the DEI programs within your organization, 
there's sort of a complacency of like, okay, yeah, we have that covered. So we don't need to worry about that anymore. How much of this is also being driven by the marketplace? Because it is, after all, a business, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And and I was struck by uh, the article again in this morning's New York Times that to some degree, some studio executives are pointing to the box office failure of movies like Bros, for example, uh, mm-hmm. as an excuse that, well, you see, having all these projects with with more uh, different kinds of groups included, it's not paying off at the box office, so therefore maybe we don't need to turn out that kind of, of property. Are you seeing signs of that? No, I, I think that that's a really um, a cheap and easy argument. You know, the business that we're in is an art, not a science. Um, And on average for a a regular studio, a theatrical studio, you know, 10% of your slate would pay for 100% of the movies you make because it's a gamble, right? So if you make 10 movies, the chances are one or two will be profitable, a couple will break even and the rest will lose money. So I think that those kinds of movies, those kinds of efforts are just scapegoats. There are a million reasons why a movie or or television show succeeds or fails um, and how you market it, who's in it, the timing of it, um, you know, weather patterns, political issues, they, they all affect them. I think the very fact that you're seeing more of an effort being made to make diverse content about diverse groups is progress. Um, I think that there was a quote in the same article you're you're speaking of in the New York Times that talked about how if a Brad Pitt movie doesn't succeed, nobody says, well, it, that's just the, the, the end of the white male starring film. I think that's accurate. I think it's just a scapegoat to say, well, we tried and it's not working. Amy Bear, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, producer, former studio executive and uh, board president of Women in Film. Right now, though, Adidas has officially ended its partnership with rapper Kanye West, who is now known as Ye. Pressure had been building for Adidas to drop Ye after his recent anti-Semitic remarks, which are still creating a fallout. With us now is Beth Keen, CEO of the Holocaust Museum Los Angeles. Her museum, by the way, offered to take Ye on a private tour. And Beth, when you made the offer, the response was... Hi, he, he he publicly rejected our offer to come to the museum. What did he say? What what reason did he give for not wanting to tour the Holocaust Museum? He it was during a a, um, a press hearing, I think. He made it clear that he had no plans to come to our museum, and he shared that his Holocaust was Planned Parenthood. But it was really important for us to invite him here so he could see the truth. And, and, you know, our museum's mission is to inspire humanity through truth and education. And we just wanted to take the opportunity for him to see artifacts from the Holocaust at where he so he could also see firsthand where hatred, you know, prejudice and bigotry can lead. I'm curious, Beth, I would imagine over the years, the museum has invited many people on on both public and private tours, and perhaps some people have turned it down for logistic reasons, they weren't available, that sort of thing. Has anyone ever turned you down for the reasons that Ye did? No. Definitely not. 
The museum also, as I understand, you you got some very bad, uh, was it emails or or mail or or what? So the the minute that Kanye made his anti-Semitic remarks on social media, the, the museum spoke out right away and invited him to come to the museum for a tour. It was really important for us to speak out. And I just want to say it's important to know that, you know, being silent is like being complicit. And that includes everyone. It includes the business community, includes all of us. We all have a responsibility to speak out. So um, so that's why it was really important for us uh, to invite him to come to the museum the minute that we heard his remarks and we posted our statement on social media and what happens is when someone like Kanye, who has over 30 million followers, he has a lot of influence and people uh, capitalize on on someone like him. And so we started seeing some hate remarks on our social media accounts. And we do not want to create a platform for people to perpetuate hate. So we made a decision to take down those hate remarks and um, but it, it was really chilling and jarring to see that that started coming up in conversation. And it just reminds us that, you know, these hate, hate speak and lies and anti-Semitism are just roaring into our public discourse and becoming mainstream. And that's not OK. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, visit Poland and uh, toured uh, what's left of Auschwitz there. Uh, It is a horrible part of history. I recall, though, after World War II, as as the Americans were moving into uh, Germany, uh, General Dwight Eisenhower uh, forced some German citizens to go visit the camps and see with their own eyes what they had supported, many of them still denying that, uh, that, well, you know, we didn't know anything was happening. And then years later, some of them still denying, well, it didn't happen. It was a hoax. Do you see more of that kind of thinking now? And is it is it getting worse than you recall? Or has there always been this undercurrent of people who deny that this even happened? I'm glad you brought that up about General Eisenhower. The sur- That's why the survivors love him. He made a point of telling the soldiers at Liberation, please document, take pictures, write letters home, because people will not believe what we are witnessing. We need to bring it home as evidence. And so that that was really important. And um, he was a role model. And, and those photographs and film footage that was used um, was actually – Uh, used as evidence during the Nuremberg trials. So he played an important role in that. And I do think that, you know, where we are seeing, you know, a spread of misinformation, disinformation, Holocaust denial, it's happening across social media. And we're seeing a huge increase in hate crimes and anti-Semitism. And we really do think that a lot of this is because Social media provides a platform for this kind of thing. Let me circle back very briefly to uh, mm-hmm. Kanye and Adidas. Uh, Adidas, of course, being a, a German company uh, with a long history, even way back to the time of Nazi Germany. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think they took too long to decide to break the relationship? Look, I think that, you know, 
everyone has a responsibility to not use hate speak, to not oppress people. And the business world has a big responsibility. Brands like Adidas are aspirational brands and they need to be role models and set examples to the world for the world. And I think, yes, it, it, it did take a while because they had to be pressured by the community and by other businesses and organizations, but they finally did the right thing, which, you know, I think sends a, a very strong message. And then because of what they did, then companies like The Gap then ended up um, following suit. So, you know, I think, yes, it, it they shouldn't have waited so long, especially when you have ties to the Holocaust. The founders we know uh, were um, joined the Nazi party and, you know, supplied athletic shoes to the Nazis. So when you have strong ties to something like that, it's really important, you know, knowing that you have this history to do the right thing. Uh, thank you so much. Beth Keen is CEO of the Holocaust Museum Los Angeles. Uh, museum offered to take you in a tour. He turned him down. By the way, I did want to point out some of the uh, films that, that we referenced of General Eisenhower that had the soldiers take. Some of those official films are available, and you can see them. They're on some of the streaming services. And Net- Netflix has uh, some of those films. Uh, you can find them on Amazon Prime as well if you want to see them uh, for yourself. That's where they are. Coming up, some Democratic strategists worry Low turnout among black voters could impact some midterm election races coming up. And if you want a good burger, fries, and a soda meal, it's going to cost you a lot more in L.A. compared to almost anywhere else in the country. Gee, that really shocks me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'll find out why, though. I think we can all guess, but we'll find out more a little bit later on. And right now, though, a court in Russia has rejected Brittany Griner's appeal to get out of prison for drug possession. That means she's going to have to stay there for nine years unless the U.S. and Russia work out some kind of deal. But is that likely to happen? Matthew Schmidt is a professor of national security, international affairs and political science at the University of New Haven. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. I'm wondering if you think that Russia, perhaps, like no intention of ever uh, giving into her appeal, keeping her in prison because they want at some point to use her as a bargaining chip. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case right now. There's no reason for them to release her anytime soon. Her value essentially, you know, goes up over time, uh, especially as they move into a position where they may want to get things out of potential negotiations with Ukraine by pressuring the U.S. to pressure Ukraine. So how do these things work? I mean, the U.S., of course, always has this official policy. We don't bargain with terrorists. We don't pay ransom. Um, How do we end up justifying all that when it's clear that this is probably going to lead to some kind of negotiation and therefore some kind of quid pro quo, right? Right. So we do say those things, but we have paid ransoms in the past um, many times. And in this case, what you see is that we often work through former government official, in this case, uh, Bill Richardson, who used to be the ambassador to the United Nations. He and his um, NGO uh, are engaged in these informal negotiations, right, these back-channel negotiations. So it's not formally the U.S. doing this. If money needs to change hands or if other kinds of things need to happen, then it can, it can happen through Richardson and his organization you know, and give sort of cover to the U.S. government until the government wants to come in and, and, and claim control over the process. Now, I imagine the red line here is that uh, U.S. officials are not going to do anything that might hurt uh, 
the situation in Ukraine make it worse for the Ukrainians. Uh, but how far are we willing to go? I mean, working through back channels, uh, what's the what's the bottom line here? What is the red line that or is it something else? Well, the administration has shown right from the start um, a, a really strong um, commitment to getting her out and Paul Whelan, uh, a retired U.S. Marine, um, also, who's being held in Russia right now. So this has been ongoing for, for months, basically, since the start of the war. So, you know, I think that they are committed to doing this and that that means sort of like the red line is, is pretty far out. They're going to they're gonna be willing to do a lot to get these two Americans back. Uh, and, you know, the one thing you've seen is that they've already offered Victor Bout, the so-called merchant of death, who is imprisoned in the United States for, among other things, conspiring to kill U.S. Uh, you know, officials, for conspiring to use anti-aircraft weapons and, and other sorts of things. So it's a pretty big deal if they're willing to let that fish out in order to bring these other two home. So let me ask a naive question. If everybody knows that these sort of game playing happens, that people are being paid through third party channels, I mean, people know that the U.S. is going to do something or has done something, as you pointed out in the past. Why not just be upfront about it? For legal reasons, for political reasons, I want to I want to be clear. I don't know that money is changing hands. But what I am saying is, is that there are these back channels and in, in past you know, negotiations, money has changed hands. So it's not out of the realm of possibility here. But, you know, essentially, U.S. policy is what you said, right? It's we're not going to negotiate with terrorists. And so we can't be seen to negotiate with terrorists. I mean, that's sort of the, the basic line here. But does it really work? I guess what I'm getting at is if the terrorists, or in this case, uh, an actual country, if everybody knows, wink, wink, nod, nod, that we say one thing, but we're going to do something totally differently, how does that act as a deterrent? Well, it doesn't really act as a deterrent. Um, and that's, I think that's the issue, right? And, and people have argued that, that the policy of, you know, don't, don't negotiate with terrorists or with, with foreign states, right, um, that that doesn't really work, but that those kinds of things are a kind of domestic propaganda that we say back to our own population. We say, look, we're not, you know, we, it's important for you to believe that we're not going to do these things. And most people don't. Most people are not as well educated, um, you know, on these issues, I think. And so if, if, if they hear that the U.S. isn't going to negotiate, um, you know, millions of people believe that the U.S. isn't going to negotiate, even if a few million others don't. Uh, Matthew Schmidt, thank you so much. Professor of National Security. Uh, International Affairs and Political Science at the University of New Haven. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, the Bay Area got a jolt just before noon today. A 5.1 earthquake hit the mountains east of San Jose. Yeah, it was uh, felt to the south and north. There was also an aftershock. No reports, though, of any injuries or Major damage with us now is KCBS radio reporter Keith Manconi. He's in Santa Clara right now. Keith, thanks for being with us. So how bad of the uh, of a after effect has the earthquake and its aftershock resulted in? Well, as for that aftershock, uh, I, for one, didn't even feel it. Maybe I was running around uh, assessing the damage, looking uh, to see how my neighbors were reacting. But that one just flew right under the radar for me uh, personally. As for the main event, that 5.1 quake, it was definitely felt far and wide. Uh, KCBS has been getting calls from all over the Bay Area 
uh, from the North Bay all the way down to the South Bay. I've also seen reports of folks feeling the quake all the way out in the Central Valley. So this is something that really rattled a lot of folks today. But uh, from what we're hearing so far, we still have no reports of any injuries or damage. We uh, are in touch with a number of local emergency agencies, and they say that for any quake above a 5.0, that is the threshold for them to start going out and assessing, making assessments, checking on key infrastructure, seeing if uh, anything has gone awry. Uh, and so that is a process that we believe is uh, currently in progress. But as uh, far as we know, uh, nothing has been turned up so far. So definitely a big jolt, but it uh, seems like we may have gotten up easy on this one. For an earthquake of this size, how long does that effort uh, continue on with people going out and making sure everybody's okay? Well, I, I, I think it's uh, going to keep going until we have really uh, peeked around every corner and uh, checked on everything. But um, we at KCBS, I mean, it, it, it does seem like uh, we can say with relative certainty that at least nothing major uh, has happened because KCBS has been getting phone calls from all over the region and everybody's telling the same story. It was a big jolt. Uh, nothing was broken. No one was hurt. And uh, we're uh, also getting the same uh, story from local emergency agencies. Uh, the San Jose Police Department in particular say uh, when I checked in with them a little bit earlier, they said that they hadn't gotten any emergency phone calls over the earthquake. So promising signs so far. You know, as you know, Keith, with earthquakes, uh, you know, often you can live on one side of the street and not feel it and live on the other side of the street and think it's the worst thing you've ever felt. It's just the the weird way that, that these things happen and the way they're felt often. I'm curious, did you actually feel the quake? And, and if so, what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I felt it pretty strong. Uh, I live in Santa Clara, which is just west of San Jose. So um, I'm probably about 20 miles uh, west of the epicenter. And uh, I live in a home that is uh, was built before the turn of the 20th century. So it's an older home, and every single creaky joint, every single window in this house was rattling for a good, I want to say, 30 or 40 seconds. This one lasted quite a while. And uh, my experience was similar to the reports that we're getting from other folks, which was that it started off pretty mild, then it crescendoed up in intensity and stayed there for a little bit. And then it came back down. So this was something that really came in waves. And, and for a little bit, it seemed like it might get pretty bad. But uh, luckily, it started scaling back down shortly after. So I'm curious, Keith, you know, everybody or many people anyway, have a kind of a threshold that if a quake ever gets to a certain point, they're out of here. Do you have a threshold? <laughs> uh, once things start falling over, that's that's where it's at for me. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, you, you don't want to be uh, tripping over that broken glass, but um, at, at least in uh, my neck of the woods, uh, really, it was just a lot of rattling. I think rattling is the best way to describe this earthquake. We didn't get to the point where anything was jumping around and falling over. Uh, we didn't get to the point where anything even looked like it might be teetering. Uh, just a lot of noise, a lot of rattling, and uh, from the sounds of the folks that have called us, a few rattled nerves. But uh, again, you know, no damage. All right. Thank you so much, uh, KCBS uh, radio reporter Keith Vincone. Guys doing uh, a good job uh, up in Santa Clarita right now, feeling a big jolt earlier today. 
Yeah, it's like the last few earthquakes we've had here in, in Southern California, I think I only felt one out of maybe four or five. I've missed the last few because I guess I've been just too far away to notice or I just thought it was the cat jumping on the bed. <laughs> Must you be know, a really heavy cat. And I pr- I prefer earthquakes that are at the level of cat jumping on bed. I don't like the ones that are more than that. Yeah, if they feel like a tiger, that's yeah, a different Yeah, issue. then you've got a problem. Yeah. Black voters have been the backbone of the Democratic Party for decades now. But concern and worry, they're growing among Democratic strategists and officials that turnout could be on the lower side for black voters. A recent political morning consult poll released last week found just 25 percent of black registered voters described themselves as extremely enthusiastic about voting in this election. as compared to about 37 percent of white voters and 35 percent of Latino voters. With us is Amani Wells on Yoha, Operations Director for Soul Strategies, which helps Democrats in their campaigns. Thank you so much for joining us. So is there a reason that there is not uh, quite so much uh, enthusiasm uh, this time around for black voters? Are are they giving you any indication why this would be? Yeah, um, I definitely think it's due to all of the vigor that the black community came with um, in order to turn those big Senate seats in Georgia last year and just how dependent the party was on the momentum from black people in this country in order to secure those seats. There were a lot of promises that were made um, that unfortunately we have not been able to really see through um, in these past two years. And I think that leads to a lot of people feeling jaded and kind of taken advantage of. Uh, To be maybe a little bit more specific, what what sort of promises do you think were not made or were, were not kept, I should say? Um, I think probably the biggest one is securing the voting rights bill. Um, That's one that particularly for those people in Georgia, we're really struggling with. There's a lot of heavy gerrymandering that goes on in the state of Georgia and a lot of obstacles that um, are put in front of a lot of black people and other people of color to vote. Um, Even people from lower, um, quote unquote, uh, wealth communities. Um, There's a lot of things like access to an ID, which we may think is small, but it can be big in certain states. Um, that kind of are big, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They're just big obstacles for people to be able to vote. So that was one of the bigger promises. And people thought that, okay, if we pull it together and come out and vote this year, then we don't have to worry about these issues affecting us next time around. Um, And that wasn't the case. We did see him do some things in these last few weeks, like the marijuana stuff, um, the student loan debt forgiveness, um, talk about securing, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and things like that. But I don't think those are tangible enough for some people. um, And that could be why we're in trouble. Um, so the managers of Democratic campaigns and, and the the chief Democratic politicians will tell you, as I'm sure you've already heard, that there's only so much you could do when you don't have a, a Congress that's fully on your side where you can't override vetoes right. and you've got enough senators that can put a block on anything they want to. Uh, that doesn't resonate, though, people who that's their main issue. And, and we can all right. understand that they feel like, well, you still should have done more. But the argument is now going to be made that, well, you need to help us get more of our politicians in Congress so that things won't be so tight. It Would that message resonate with black voters, do you think? Um, It could, but it's basically what we were told last time around. To be fair to the Biden administration, I don't think they knew how much of a just complete cinder block that 
mansion and cinema have been because they thought that they secured enough senators having those two there. Um, but now that it's clear that they aren't willing to really help with the Democratic agenda or Biden's plan for this presidency overall, I think the party just needs to be more aggressive with their language and be more actively fighting for this group of people and not do it in a way that seems so strategic because it's already a big criticism that a lot of people in the community feel is that we're used as a token or we're just like the redheaded stepchild that you know they know they can always rely on um, and then whenever we win a seat or a victory because of this voting block we seem to be ignored until the next time they're asking for a vote so I guess a lot of people feel like the party is always coming to us asking for our vote but we have a hard time saying oh well we can vote for them in mass and mass and more mass numbers because they keep delivering x y and z for us it's almost as if we always get the short end of the stick um in the whole political equation of what you know the party is planning to do with these seats okay but here comes the 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 problem i suspect do, do you think that black voters are uh, either aware or, or concerned, if they are aware, that if they don't come out in large numbers for Democratic candidates that, that historically have benefited them, that mm-hmm. they end up shooting themselves potentially in, in the, the foot. foot because Republicans mm-hmm. who might be antithetical to what they yeah. really want uh, will certainly not deliver on the things that they think are needed. Yeah, Is that, isn't that a problem? I definitely think it's a problem. I'm not one of the people who think the solution to being frustrated with the Democratic Party is to go vote for the Republican Party. I don't think that makes any sense. Um, So I'm hoping that, and typically this is what happens, like I was reading an article today, the political article, and they say this is a cyclical thing that does happen. Um, The closer you get to elections, these same worries are brought up year after year. Um, So it may just be the timing of it all. Um, And we'll just have to ultimately see how it pans out. But I don't think switching parties or sitting out is beneficial to black people at all. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I mean, it always comes down to this. We we always hear a a version of the story as we get close to the election. But then you realize this black voters is not going to vote against themselves by voting for the other. But the worst that might happen is that they won't go vote at all, which I think is is the concern among Democratic Party leaders right now. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Amani wills Nyoha, Operations Director for Soul Strategies, uh, which helps Democrats in their campaigns. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you got a COVID shot from either Pfizer or Moderna, did you have those side effects? Like, uh, did you get the chills, the yeah. sore arm? Yes. And uh, I got a little bit of that, too. You might. Some people even got a bit more rundown, and they even got, like, a fever. Yeah, I got all three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At oh. least on, on the last booster, a new study finds, though, if you did get any of those things, that's apparently a good thing. Researchers from Columbia University, University of Vermont, and Boston, you found that people who had side effects tended to have a greater antibody response following vaccination. With us now is Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I have kind of a two-part question. I remember early on when the vaccines first came out and some people were saying, oh, we got a reaction. And other people said, no, I didn't get anything. And all the experts we talked to at the time said it doesn't make one bit of difference, uh, you know, unless you have uh, your immunocompromised. The vaccine is going to work just as, as well, regardless of whether you had side effects or not. And then we were also told that 
in any event, nobody really knows what level of antibodies you need. So what is the significance then, if any, of the findings of this particular study? Well, it, it's complicated. I mean, every variant is different. We've dealt with a bunch of different kinds of vaccines, the original primary series, the booster, and now the hybrid booster. Um, and antibodies are very hard to actually grasp the meaning of. Uh, this study looked at spike antibodies, which are the easiest ones to commercially obtain. And those antibodies have little to do with protection. So they're a marker, and maybe there's a marker here for reaction, but I'm I'm not sure that I'd make a whole lot out of it. So in other words, you're you're saying that if somebody doesn't get any side effects from the shot, they shouldn't be worried that, oh, my God, that means it's not protecting me at all. Absolutely. And also, I remember when we first started getting these uh, vaccine shots, uh, the first one I had at the uh, pharmacy, they said, no, you must sit here. We have to watch you for 20 minutes to make sure that you're not going to turn into a zombie or pass out or whatever. And, of course, you know, nobody did it. Most people were okay. The second one, a little bit more lax, like just sit here for a couple of minutes. If you're okay, go ahead and go. And then I think the third one, they're like, "Uh, yeah, you can leave now. We don't care. Uh, It's kind of like when you have a kid. Your first kid, you're always paranoid about. You you soften all the edges and the house and you cover all the electrical outlets but by your third or fourth kid you're like yeah you can stick your finger there as long as you don't die Uh, is that kind of like the attitude we're getting with these shots and and should we maybe uh, spend a little more time uh, keeping an eye on people after they get shots to see what kind of reactions they have you know first of all everybody's different and and what you're saying is correct Uh, you know we tended to be a little bit more careful at the beginning and then we realized there wasn't much going on so we were less careful the second time and so on. So, you know, it's a process that kind of continues and we keep learning as the process gets older and older. It's been recently reported, for example, that people that are in good shape are, you know, do very well. I mean, do do very well uh, with COVID or do very well in terms of response to the vaccine or both? Both. So, so to go back to, to the, the antibody uh, issue, um, we have all these studies that keep coming out uh, about antibodies and how uh, one vaccine produces more and then the, the antibodies wane after a certain amount of time, all that. But T cells and B cells, right, are, are incredibly important, maybe more so than antibody response to the vaccines. But we don't see, at least for the lay public, a lot of studies on, on that. Is that because they're harder to do or they're more expensive to do? They're harder to do and they're hard to kind of get conclusions for a population from. That's the issue. And even antibodies, there are spike antibodies, like in this study, there are neutralizing antibodies that seem to be more effective. So there's lots of different antibodies and, you know, they they have value in studying a population, but they have very little value in an individual uh, because we, it goes all over the board and we just don't know what it means. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Katona, clinical professor of medicine in infectious diseases at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine. So if you're getting hungry, how does a nice juicy burger with some crispy warm fries and maybe a, an ice cold soda sound? Well, if it sounds good, it's going to cost you. The website Money Geek analyzed the cost of a burger, fries and a drink across 145 restaurants in the 50 
largest cities. It found that uh, L.A. is the second most expensive place for that combo with the average price at $14.59. Long Beach was fourth at thirteen oh eight. The most expensive is San Francisco, where a combo average is fifteen thirty. Now, the cheapest place is not Poughkeepsie. It is Tulsa, where you only have to spend six fifty-five. So, why is there such a huge difference here? Francis Perdue is a publicist and a food branding and marketing expert. She's the founder and CEO of Scooter P Entertainment. Thank you so much for joining us. So, that that is the first question: Why why is there such a big difference in prices? I think it's just inflation and where you want to be when you're eating your burger. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get that. I mean, it's six fifty-five in Tulsa, but. Who the heck wants to be in Tulsa? <laughs> I mean, let's <laughs> let's be honest. Come on. <laughs> I'm definitely a Cali native and a foodie, so I get it. Um, I have been one of those people that spend upwards of $20 for one burger and fries. So I get it. I think at this point, we're indulging and everyone has their vices and mine happens to be food. So it doesn't bother me that it's that much money, but it is kind of high. Now, the first thought, thing I thought of when I saw this study was, you know, with the fast food franchise, I always assumed that like uh, with the McDonald's or Burger King or or uh, Carl's Jr., what have you, that the prices are going to be the same all over the country. Uh, are, no. Aren't they the same all over the country? Why, why not? Even the franchises yeah. set different prices? Um, the franchises have – well, I was a franchisee. I actually was one of the people who had a burger in, but I was opening in Birmingham, even though I'm a Cali native. So the price of food is different and we get them from different manufacturers. So we have your Cisco's and you have all these U.S. foods and all these different suppliers. Right. And as they increase their prices as a restaurant owner, you have to increase yours. I guess the thing that rubs me the wrong way about burgers being expensive is, you know, and maybe it's unfair to burgers, but I always think of them as, you know, basically cheap food that doesn't mean they're bad but you know cheap uh i don't think of of having to spend a lot of money but i've been to you know some restaurants kind of upscale places where they want to charge like 25 bucks for a hamburger um but 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 is that part of the 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 thing When, when did hamburgers move from being kind of you know lower (laughs) lower priced foods Right. I mean, I, I mean, like I still remember. Yeah, items. I mean, I remember McDonald's being. Like a hot dog. Yeah, I mean, I don't you remember like McDonald's being like I don't know, like ninety cents or something for a hamburger or whatever. Uh, Actually, I, I do. You do, right? Okay, <laughs> so there. Brad, I think that um, when we had the Long Beach Naval Station, which you guys know now as the port of L.A., yeah, um, we had an actual Burger King on the base, right? So as a kid, I spent a lot of time there, and there were those burgers that were 99 cents, and you had your Whoppers and all this stuff. And I think just with the inflation, COVID, the pricing that these restaurants, even the basic ones where we're like, yeah, it's a franchise, but it's still McDonald's, right? It's so crazy. Um, people are getting paid 15 and $20 an hour to work at In-N-Out. And so they have to increase their prices to keep up with the Joneses and be able to provide it. Well, you know, it's not I, I don't think it's just a franchise. I think you've also got to factor in your your somewhat upper scale restaurants that serve Indeed. hamburger uh, dishes. And, you know, like what we would call a combo dish that's that's on the main mm-hmm. menu. I don't know if that factored into this survey and how we got this average, but I wouldn't be surprised right. if that was the case. Uh, 
as Charles was saying, he remembers when hamburgers were supposedly like your cheap, quick food. Uh, when right. did hamburgers start becoming more something served at upscale restaurants as well? Well, when people started becoming mixologists, right? And people started <laughs> saying, yes, we're going to do a flip on this and flip on that. It can't just be a Manhattan. It has to have an orange bitter in it, right? Oh, so yeah. <laughs> with the actual restaurants, people are hiking up the prices by doing, oh, this is a Wagyu burger. Have you seen that recently? Or they'll be like, oh, yeah, this is a twist. This is a salmon burger. And it's the same salmon that would have on the seven ninety nine menu for yeah, sure. another I, restaurant. Yeah, or and our so hamburger, our hamburger oh. is wrapped in, in in gold foil. <laughs> oh, it's funny that you state that. Um, oh. My family's from Birmingham, and yeah. there's a restaurant that opened downtown, and they had gold chicken wings. Gold. And so you're laughing, but people are doing this. Really? And a hundred bucks wow. for people to come in and partake in the gold chicken wings, right? Oh, wow. And so that's what people are doing as restaurant owners. And I'm not mad at them. You know, make your money. However, um, these items shouldn't be this much on these menus. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, I no. was going to ask you, if, if burgers aren't the cheap food anymore, what is? A grilled cheese? That's a great question. Yeah, grilled cheese sandwiches. I don't know if you've seen on the apps. I'm a person that's like, yes, Uber Eats to my house, right? So I don't know if you've seen this trend, too, with restaurants. They have buffer restaurants where they can have, like, the same type of cheap menu, like, Oh, did we lose it? Oh, there you go. You'll see, you'll say, hey, you can get a cheap toast sandwich, and it's still the burger place that you were supposed to get your burger from, but it's cheaper. So you'll be surprised. So many people are supplementing their incomes, even major franchises um, that I've seen, and they they have these, I call them cover restaurants right. on your Uber Eats, your Grubhub, and they are doing that cheaper amount of cheese toast sandwiches and things like that, and people are buying it. I, I want to, by the way, for the record, I, I want it noted that while Francis mentioned that they have uh, chicken wings with, you know, wrapped in, I guess, gold, that <laughs> yeah, I, I am claiming, I am claiming to be the, because uh, we said it here first, I am the official inventor of the hamburger wrapped in gold, gold. foil. I, I want that on the record. So, so we're really all know, we're going to have to talk to um, Ripley's Believe It or Not and just go ahead and put it on. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And now that we're all uh, fantastically hungry, and uh, uh, I'm not going to get a chance to go out and eat something, but Charles, you will. You know what I want? A pizza. I don't even want a burger. I just want a pizza. Speaking of expensive things, pizzas are getting up there, too. Yeah, they are. All right. We've got to look into that. Maybe a future episode of KidX In-Depth. We hope you enjoyed uh, today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow at uh, 1 p.m. Maybe, and- I can, maybe I can invent uh, the solid gold pizza, too. The solid gold pizza yeah. with, with gold flakes on it. Yeah. Wouldn't that be? Yeah. Tell me you wouldn't want that. I not the gold flakes, honestly. I don't want to no, eat no. gold. But we price it at a reasonable price, right. like 100 bucks a slice. <laughs> That's reasonable. And someone would pay for it. Yeah, no kidding.